The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning or good afternoon, as the case might be. Welcome to America's Web Radio, and it's time for one of our favorite shows, Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. But before we start the show with um, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Phil Forsberg, we we uh, always do a moment of silence to remember our veterans, those that served in Desert Shield and Desert Storm, as well as those that have served any and everywhere, as well as the ones that are serving today. And uh, we're very proud of them and want them to know that we're always thinking about the veterans. So with that being said, let's take just a a brief moment, and we'll be back in about one minute. And uh, just have a little prayer for everybody that's been in the military. Thank you for uh, taking a moment. Now we're going to hit one of our fun things, and uh, we'll be back with Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Forsberg momentarily. Ain't no sense in going home. Ain't no sense in going home. Jody's got her girl and gone. Jody's got her girl and gone. Ain't no sense in feeling blue. Ain't no sense in feeling blue. Jody got your sister too. Jody got your sister too. Sound off. One, two. Sound off. Three, four. Break it on down. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Hey, Sergeant Hardy. Okay, we all love our Jodies and uh, the cadence calls that we went through. Good morning, Phil. How you doing? Good morning, Phil. Well, whoops, we seem to have lost Phil. Uh, If you can hold on, we'll put... Let me uh, get Phil back on the line. I'm not sure uh, what happened to him, but I thought we were going well, and obviously that's what I get for thinking. Not sure what happened. Yeah, let me. Not sure what happened. Let me transfer you in again, okay? 
Okay, well, I, I, that's off, okay? All right, thank you. Okay, Phil, can you hear me now? I hear you just great, David. Okay, well, we're off and running. We've gotten the uh, our moment of silence out of off, and uh, we've run our Jody, so we're ready to talk Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And uh, we put a lot of Facebook out and a lot of uh, Twitters out about the show, and um, we have a lot of veterans that uh, served in, in both the Shield and Desert Storm, and you were there just for remember, you know, for everybody that hasn't tuned in in the past. Tell us what your MOS and what you did in uh, in uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Well, um, I was a pilot in in the army. Uh, I was a uh, <clears throat> a captain at the time, uh, and I was assigned uh, as. Uh, the, a surveillance platoon leader for uh, an OV-1 Mohawk company. Uh, the OV-1 was a fixed-wing airplane. I had previously flown helicopters, and, and now I was in a fixed-wing assignment flying these uh, oh, Vietnam-era um, uh, fixed-wing turboprop aircraft that did uh, uh, information collection uh, surveillance to the battlefield area. And um, we were part of a military intelligence uh, brigade. Um, we and so we. Uh, my company was, uh, I think, about 250 um, men. That uh, you know, we had I think 15 airplanes, and we uh, we flew these missions. Uh, they're typically flown with uh, just a pilot. Uh, in the left seat and a uh, systems operator in the right seat and uh, we got assigned to um, King Fahd International Airport uh, in Daman, Saudi Arabia um, we stayed there until uh, <clears throat> we were about you know the, we, we were attached uh, as part of this uh, military intelligence brigade to 18th Airborne Corps and uh, when Suddenly, the uh, in December of '90, the Corps, you know, uh, swung way out to the west and uh, set up operations there. We, we tried to move with them, but uh, because there was no ramp space for our aircraft, um, the, the special operators had taken all the air the ramp space up in that area. We had to stay back at uh, King Fod. And uh, so we were uh, a couple hundred miles, I guess, from the border. And, um, so that got added to our mission every day, you know, flying that that extra distance. Uh, but uh, so we flew. We started collecting in October. Uh, we got our alert in August of '90. We uh, spent uh, that month and most of the next uh, preparing to go. We we. Um, deployed on the 23rd of September, uh, the main body of our company, uh, and then we, we came into Saudi Arabia, and uh, we started, we, we, the aircraft ferried 
with uh, aux- auxiliary tanks across the Atlantic from uh, we, the last U.S. landfall was in uh, Bangor, Maine, then they went to Gander, Newfoundland, then to Iceland, or Greenland, Thule, Greenland, and then uh, uh, Reykjavik, Iceland, and Scotland, and then into uh, Germany, and then down across, uh, um, they went through uh, Cairo, Egypt, and then over from there. Now, if there were uh, most, if not all, missions daylight, or did you all do some infrared night from night work as well well the, you know the the mohawk uh back in vietnam it had an infrared package for finding uh the campfires of the Viet Cong along the uh ho chi minh trail but we didn't have that uh, we didn't use infrared at all we did have uh cameras on our aircraft uh but we really didn't use those either uh what we used was side looking airborne radar um, which doesn't care if it's day or night. And so uh, our, uh, we got our imagery basically showing whatever was moving on the ground. And um, we had the capability to look uh, deep into, you know, uh, deep behind the enemy lines. Um, and then the, uh, so uh, we flew, well, you know, when the, when the, when the shooting war started, well, when the, I would say when the uh, when the air war started, we we were doing twenty four seven. So we we'd use an aircraft. Uh, we'd have an aircraft surveilling the battlefield twenty four hours. Wow! And, uh, so uh, most of my missions were at night, um, and um, yeah, it was uh, some of it in weather, and uh, yeah. It was, you know, it gets challenging, right? They, uh, you, the, the Army has a way of teaching you to do something, and then just as you feel like you're getting good at it, they, you know, uh, juggling these two balls, they throw you a third. When you think <laughs> you can do that right, then they throw you a fourth. So I was flying single pilot, night instrument, combat. Uh, <laughs> wow. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, one thing after another. Now, who was was this air coordinated or ground coordinated? Well, um, you know, all the missions had to be on what was called the air tasking order. Uh, the Air Force was in charge of that, and the Air Force ran a uh, uh, an AWACS aircraft. It's interesting because the AWACS is sort of um, similar to the uh, to the Mohawk uh, the in that uh, they find the aerial moving targets and we find the, the um, ground moving targets. So, um, yeah, we, uh, so the AWACS basically provided our separation. Normally, when you fly on an instrument flight plan, uh, you know, in the, in the States, you, you have air traffic control providing separation so the aircraft don't collide, but since... Um, we weren't we weren't using that, you know. We come in and sort of take over the place. So uh, we had um, AWACS basically providing us separation. They would tell us if there were another aircraft in the area that we needed to look out for, um, and they would also identify. We had four different uh, modes of uh, transponder. Um, at least two of them, I think, were to tell if you're a friend or foe. 
And uh, so each time we took off, we would check in with AWACS, and they would tell us if our codes were operating properly. And uh, so they kept a good watch on us like that. Wow. So it's, you know, you had a very complicated role, and I guess few civilians would appreciate what you and your peers were doing in um, that area during that time. And was there that much new added to what you were doing, Phil? Um, new in what sense? Uh, as far as uh, new equipment goes, as you all were doing it, was it a working project, a working process? Not project, work in process as you were as you were doing missions. Um, we uh, we would uh, no, you know, our stuff was pretty much uh, uh, set a standalone uh, program uh, operation system, if you will. Um, uh, you know, I had a I had a squad of uh, imagery analysts that would uh, in, uh, they would typically be on the ground and, and analyzing the uh, the imagery that we produced with our uh, side looking airborne radar also known as SLAR uh, and they they would report you know their findings to the uh, to the core headquarters and uh, I also had um, some of my uh, enlisted folks uh that would normally fly in the airplane. They were they were detailed down to the divisions. Um, I had one at the, at the uh, core tactical operations center and uh, one at the um, at the 101st Airborne Division tactical operations center and another at the 24th Infantry Division tactical operations center. Um, so we uh, <clears throat> we provided this. Uh, this imagery would come uh, it would be produced sort of in an archaic 1960s technology uh, on a heat sensitive acetate and uh, we could we had the same system that was in the airplane it was mounted in a little shelter on the back of trucks and we sent the same data that we were getting down to uh, these trucks via a data link and um, so my liaisons at the, at the Corps headquarters and the, and the um, division headquarters uh, were able to see the same imagery that my uh, technician on board was was producing in the, in the cockpit. Wow. So, um, Phil, yeah. we, we need to uh, take a quick break, and uh, we'll be back on remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm right after this. Hi, this is Rocky Blair former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. 
This program, From Lawyers to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And uh, you're listening to America's Web Radio and our show called Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm with our host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Forsberg. So with that, Philip, back to you. Okay. Well, um, so I see where I was. So we would download this stuff, the downlink this stuff, and they'd, they'd have that imagery right there uh, at our liaison spots. Um, we had some of the oldest equipment, I think, in the theater. You know, the helicopter units had their Apaches and their, the air defense had their Patriot missiles. The armored guys had the Abrams tank. The infantry and cavalry had their uh, Bradleys. And the, uh, the artillery had their multiple launch rocket system. And we had this uh, old 1960s um, Vietnam-era uh, airplane and its systems on board, but uh, we, we did a fantastic job with what we had. Um, if I don't uh, sound too proud, I hope. But we uh, <clears throat> we did provide 24-hour coverage, and so we flew our first mission in uh, October of '90, and um, we we began building a database of uh, where. Uh, all of Saddam's forces were arranged on the battlefield where their uh, main supply routes and their uh, dates and times of movements of troop concentrations and uh, you know in the intelligence business you, you take one kind of intelligence and you overlay it with another kind of intelligence and another kind until you finally get the, the picture of what exactly is going on so our imagery was combined with uh with radar, you know, uh, the, where their radars were arrayed, where the enemy radars were arrayed, which was overlaid by communications uh, uh, intelligence and and then, of course, uh, human intelligence. And so uh, we had a complete picture, pretty much. We were able to give to the uh, Corps commander and to General Schwarzkopf, of, you know, what where the enemy was and what they were doing. You know, that's. Can you imagine that ability in World War II? <laughs> you know, I often think about David. You know, when I when I look at uh, 
World War II and the, and the sacrifices our guys made. Uh, places like uh, Saipan and uh, and uh, Normandy, and the, you know, of course, the 101st jumped in, as well as the 82nd. 101st jumped in to uh, France, you know, on D-Day. But uh, today they'd go in and helicopters. And uh, tell you what, we I I was supporting the 101st, and that first day of the ground war, they put a whole division. 100, 100 kilometers, I think, behind the, the front lines in the enemy's rear. And, uh, well, you got real problems then. And, you know, folks weren't breaking their legs and, you know, getting killed in uh, parachute accidents and glider crashes. They went in in style and fast and, uh, and accurate. They were landed right where they needed to be. And I'll tell you what, uh, you know, the lessons we learned from anything from uh, Lexington and Concord up through uh, Vietnam, we applied all those lessons, in, you know, developing the technology that we that we had at the storm, and we were very grateful to have it. Do you, uh, do you think uh, there's any country comparable to our technology other than what the Chinese have stolen from us? <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's hard to tell. Uh, you know, the, the only real way to know is, is to test it, and uh, I hope we don't. I hope we don't have to test it anytime soon. Uh, things uh, things can go very dramatic very quickly, as uh, Saddam found out. We were able to reduce. When I say we, I'm talking about you know the, the forces that were assembled in in the the desert there we were able to reduce Saddam had 49 divisions at the start of the uh, air war and um, by well less than a month later uh, we had reduced him down to two divisions that were combat effective 39 were rendered combat ineffective wow it was an impressive victory, and you know we weren't fighting an entrenched, uh, uh, well, you know, an insurgency like in Vietnam, where you know people selling rice from a boat were also uh, part of the enemy. We, were, you know, it was force on force, uh, conventional warfare, and um, it went fast and furious. I used to tell people it, it seemed like we were fighting the whole thing on a blackboard. <laughs> the, the enemy had no secrets. So, as far as technology or equipment, you know, I'm sure 30 years have passed, and uh, I'm sure the stuff today would would amaze me. Uh, but uh, you know, of course, there's no. You're never going to have a substitute for uh, for you know the the boots on the ground. Um, you know, when I went through the infantry school at Fort Benning, they told us the ultimate weapon is the American soldier. And, uh, uh, you know, there's just there's no, just no substitute for that. Uh, technology uh, doesn't hold the high ground. And so we got to have boots on the ground for that. The lesson. Uh, you know, there was a, one of my 
personal military heroes was uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, and he famously said in his memoirs that any attempt to make warfare safe or easy would end in humiliation and disaster, and I think he's been borne out on that. Oh, yeah, that, that's an interesting interesting quote. Um, you know, I certainly salute any FO that... Uh, they were in dangerous territory all the time. Uh, and Ford observers, I don't think, ever got the credit that they deserved. But I guess they uh, called in a lot of uh, firepower. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, uh, in the effectiveness of our artillery. They say that that multiple-launch rocket system that we were using in the desert for the first time in combat, um, it, you know, uh, they can wipe out a whole one-kilometer-by-one-kilometer one uh, field. Mm. Everything, kill everything uh, with pinpoint accuracy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not been the hallmark. Pinpoint accuracy has not been the hallmark of, of artillery. No, but that's interesting. Uh, you know, and again, uh, this is sort of an abstract question, but can you think of any other country that does everything in the world to uh, keep down the collateral damage? We are, uh, no, to answer you, no, uh, I can't think of anybody, um, and where Saddam had all Soviet equipment and Soviet doctrine and Soviet, uh, uh, advisors there, and, uh, it, uh, it didn't go real well for him, um, you know, as far as keeping down collateral damage, you know, uh, you know, it's sad, but you wind up with, uh, with, uh, you know, innocent people getting hurt in warfare, and we do everything we can to avoid it. Some of the saddest to me is, uh, is uh, fratricide. I had some uh, examples of that. The, uh, the Air Force had some uh, had some uh, A-10s attacking uh, some of our friendly forces. That was bad. And also had a Apache engage some of our uh, forces and uh, just, you know, what can you say? It's horrible. Well, on that note, let's take another break and uh, we'll be back with Lieutenant Colonel Retired Phil Forsberg right after this. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we do thank you for listening and listening to Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we have our host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Phil Forsberg, on the line. And he was talking about, we were talking about technology a little bit and, uh, you know, what what it means in combat. And, uh, you know, the lives that you saved by identifying where the enemy was and uh, just incredible results. And uh, like you said, that was a number of years ago, 30 years ago, and who knows what the new technology is. Yeah, uh, I'm certainly not an expert on it. I have my fights with my own technology every day. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I, you know, I'm sure it would make your head spin. Um, and of course, you know, one of the big things these days is uh, cyber security. Um, it's uh, become its own branch in the army of cyber security. It's, uh, it's a very important deal. And, you know, David, I know you like to uh, encourage young people to uh, consider a military career. And I'll tell you, you get uh, you get qualified in uh, cybersecurity in, in, the, um, in the Army, and uh, you, you will never be looking for a job. There, there are people all over trying to, trying to hire you. You know, and the other, other thing that... Uh well, let me just ask: Has the drone replaced replaced you? Um, I will say no. Um, I have uh, worked extensively with unmanned aircraft in, in a time since. Um, it's an interesting evolution what's gone on with unmanned aircraft. Um, we have some, you know, very small stuff that you know infantry uh, companies can carry with them and. And you know, look over the the ridge line or look behind a wall. Um, very, uh, some very good stuff. We have you know stuff that can fly for very long periods of time. And, uh, you know, shoot ordnance and you know destroy things. Um, but you know, uh, there's there's got to be a guy operating it. Does he have to be over the battlefield? Not always. Um, but you know, there's always there's always uh, a need for that personal touch. And I will tell you this: um, uh, half your uh, listeners ask themselves this question: Would you would you climb on an airliner going from Atlanta to New York, uh, knowing that there was no pilot, that the guy that was operating, you know, in charge of safe operation of that aircraft was? Sitting on a at a ground station terminal somewhere in Philadelphia, um, would, would you get on that airplane? Now I'll tell you, I've, um, 
answers. If anybody's thinking, the answer is no. Uh, I um, I flew as an airline pilot for uh, many years, and um, you know I'd have the cockpit door open, and people got on, and they walk by the cockpit, and they want to look me in the eye. They want to know that there's a guy up there that's got as much stake as they do in the safe operation of that flight. So I don't think you're going to put soldiers on uh, uh, deliver them without pilots. It's just not going to happen. I cannot foresee that. Well, you know, I we don't know what tomorrow holds, you know. And uh, I would say as far as... Um, you know our our drones and their ability to take the pictures and send them back, or you know, uh, if we can save one life by using a drone. But I'm like you; I'm not going to get on a uh, airline that uh, is pilot pilotless. The drones still can't make up their mind what to do, and. Uh, I don't want to be on that plane when the decision comes. So I think you have a very good point there, but at the same time, I think drones will will uh, be used more and more for intel and uh, as they get more sophisticated and uh, hopefully not shot down as often as they have been lately but uh, and are left behind to be uh, re-engineered or whatever, but, you know, it's, uh, I guess it's a cooperation of both, you know. Uh, we have it in the Army, or we have the, the drones in the Army and so forth, and uh, then we have our our Air Force, and, uh, you know, do you think it'd ever be possible for a drone to call in an airstrike? Well, I don't think a drone would call in an airstrike. But the operator of the drone. Uh, well, that's happened, of course. Um, that's happened quite a bit. Um, but, uh, you know, we do, I mean, we launch uh, weapons uh, from the, uh, from drones, and we, uh, we have quite a bit of, uh, I know today from my, you know, experience with uh unmanned aircraft, they do something called uh, manned-unmanned teaming, where uh, the drone operator uh, can actually uh, give control uh, or uh, visibility of what he's seeing, you know, through the, through the drone's um, cameras to uh, Army pilots in the cockpits of Apaches uh, that can see, you know, take a look at exactly what, what the... Uh, the drone is seeing, and wow. uh, they use that in conjunction uh, to, um, you know, to develop um, the situation and engage targets. Um, that's, that's pretty common. Yeah, this stuff's moving pretty quick, and, you know, of course, the information I have is, is old. I'm more than 10 years retired now. Well, it's, uh, it's amazing, and... Um you know, I guess the the bottom line is, in all respects, if we can save that, the boots on the ground, or save the pilot, or you know, any way that we can work around a death is uh, 
is good technology, and um, if uh, if we can just keep it to ourselves, that seems to be the trick right now. Is uh, we develop it, and all of a sudden somebody else has uh, the same thing that we do, and not good, not good at all. But uh, we are a country of ingenuity, and uh, if the questions ask, we're going to find an answer to it. And, uh, you know, it'd be interesting, and I don't know how anyone could ever do it, but if you could find a way of, of doing it, it would be incredible. But how many dreams wind up as realities on the field of battle? And, you know, it's like... Uh, Everything from the, the automatic rifle to uh, uh, Claymore mines to everything else. I mean, somebody had to dream it up and then develop it. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in uh, Department of Defense, they call it capabilities management. Right? I mean, we had folks uh, on the battlefield in Afghanistan and Iraq that were um, basically uh, telling, the commanders would, would tell these folks at the Pentagon about a capability that they needed, right? In other words, yeah. mm-hmm. they needed the capability to see this or see through smoke or see through clouds or, um, you know, just you name it, capability or something. And then there was a, a whole capabilities, you know, uh, process built around putting things together. Department of Defense has something called DARPA. Have you ever heard of that, David? No, I haven't. It's uh, it, DARPA is a defense uh, advanced research project agency um, and they will give grants to people who uh, have ideas, concepts uh, that they want to develop. And uh, and DARPA will basically bring you through the whole um, uh, process of getting it feasible. And once you know, once you've proven that the capability you know can be uh, achieved, then they they kind of walk out of it. But it's a way to give industry, uh, you know, folks who are who are ingenious about uh, you know adding new capabilities. Uh, you know, just a, a leg up on getting the process going. That's interesting. No, I, I'd never heard of that, but that's uh, that's fascinating to know that uh, we're even we're still going after the civilian for some of our high tech military. Would that be a correct statement? Yeah, the Department of Defense is always looking for for. Um, you know, geniuses, and uh, and I met a couple, but um, and it's not just Department of Defense industry. You know, the Department of Defense is a fantastic customer. Their their checks never bounce. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, those folks in the industry, you know, unfortunately, what uh, what Dwight Eisenhower called the defense uh, or, or military industrial prod. Uh, 
complex. These folks, uh, you know, they're, they're folks. They know how much money can be made. Um, you know, supporting our national defense. Oh yeah, one defense contract uh, can put you on uh, easy street for many years. Yeah, uh, I heard one time that Dupont made. Uh, on average, five cents for every round that was fired in the Second World War. Wow! Oh. Yeah, that's that's like Colonel Sanders getting five cents a chicken, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's orders of magnitude greater. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, uh, that's that's just unimaginable what that would be. Uh, have they ever, has anybody ever given an estimate of how many rounds were fired? I guess the, the, the fellow who made that uh, statement about DuPont probably had a, a number he'd come up with somewhere. Hmm. Probably just looked at, you know, what the Army had bought. Although, he may be a few, few rounds off because I remember at uh, Fort Benning, uh, when we, we, had, we were out in the field and we had... 50 cal we uh we had some of these cans of ammunition that were like spam cans that had a key and uh you could you open them the way the i don't know if you remember the old spam can that had a little tab and it would pull off a strip of metal around right yeah i do we opened it up and these things were uh there were 50 cal rounds in there and they were uh and they had been packed in ether. We could smell the ether, you know, when we opened these cans. And uh, the cans were marked, this is 1982 when we were opening them, and they said on the can it was marked, repackaged in 1945. Wow. There were a couple of rounds that, that the Army had bought for for the war that didn't get spent, thank God. Mm. Uh, we were still using them. Well, let's take our uh, final break, and uh, we'll be back talking uh, Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm right after this. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on America's Web Radio with our show, Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And, you know, just just for the fun of it, Phil, I've done a little bit of, uh, 
I, I don't know if surveying, I guess, is as good as any word, but uh, asking some younger folks and just some folks in general, uh, you know, what was Desert Shield and Desert Storm about? And uh, I'm still, and this is exactly why we do the show, I'm still amazed at the number of folks that have no clue. And uh, they sure can't... They sure can't identify the actor that started it all, Saddam Hussein, and uh, they really, really don't know uh, a lot about it. And I, I feel, you know, I'm not sure how I feel whether we, we should be. Uh, I don't want to say exploiting, but I feel like people have to remember and. Uh, you know, whenever a person has sacrificed however many years they had to be away from home, their their family missed them. They, you know, it's like uh, my son's fixing to be deployed, and uh, he'll miss some of the greatest times in his newborn's life. And uh, those memories can't be given back. You know, and. Yep. Uh, we have to we have to remember each and every deployment, whether it's a, a major war, a major conflict, or just the fact that we had to send troops. And that's and and like we've said many times, you're not just sending a spouse; you're sending the whole family. It's true; it does affect uh, the whole family. Um, and, you know, we're just very fortunate to have folks that are, are willing to do it. And I'm so pleased with our all-volunteer force that uh, we're able to sustain what we need uh, to defend our nation um, through, the, through the sacrifice that they make. And, of course, that's part of why I do what I do as a, as a service officer. And you know that, David, uh, with uh, the... Uh, disabled American veterans, helping veterans get the, the benefits that they've earned through their service. Um, it, it's, big, it's an important thing. You know, these, these folks, they go beyond the extra mile for us, and, uh, you know, we uh, we need to support, you know, those who have borne the battle, uh, in, uh, in the words of Abraham Lincoln. And... I always, I don't know, I, I, I mentally get upset and uh, of thinking about the fact that oh, we only have 1% of the country that decides to serve. And yet, you know, the, the military is, I think, over the years, um, I guess probably it really started happening in the 70s, maybe even as late as the 80s. But they turned, they, you know, there there was a a bad feeling towards joining the military and going into the military, and um, whoever wisely turned the military into a not only a profession, but a, and not only just a job, but they also made it a competitive industry. And uh, what a lot of young folks don't understand is that 
one, you can get training in some of the most in incredible fields in the world, and secondly, like you said a minute ago, you'll have uh, jobs waiting for you when you come out, <clears throat> and all of this is done at a <clears throat> pardon me at a very competitive income, and whenever the government and whoever in the government decided to make the military, all branches, competitive with civilian jobs, made a very wise decision. Yeah, well, I'll say, uh, you know, it was, it was part of the natural flow of things. People didn't want to be drafted. They didn't want to be conscripted. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, when they made that the... Uh, the barometer. People didn't want to serve, uh, and they didn't want to serve involuntarily. Then, uh, you know, market forces said, "Well, they had to pay soldiers enough that uh, people would do the job." It's just a simple matter of economics, and um, you know, now you know it's it's quite a good career, and not just for officers, but you know, enlisted folks. You know, can make a very good career uh, and get a lot of uh, skills for life, and to um, move on to some very, um, you know, productive and secure employment. And as you mentioned too, the uh, benefits after you're discharged or after you retire are comparable in many, many ways. In some ways, even better than civilian life and uh, I know I in fact I told Brett this morning I said I guess one of my major mistakes in life was uh, ever getting out of the military I should have stayed in and uh, you know and I'm not sure why I got out other than that that was the thing you did back when I was in is it you waited until you became short and then you were gone, and there was no real, at that point, there was no real incentive to to uh, stay even in the reserves. And uh, But now there is, and I, I salute all branches for what they're doing on keeping folks in. And, they, you know, and I guess this is something else that a lot of people don't realize or don't understand, and I'm glad to bring it up, as a matter of fact, is, you know... How much does it cost to train a pilot? How much does it cost to train an engineer? And, you know, our government, our military, puts a lot of money into individuals. And uh, then there's the retention rate of getting them to stay after their first however many years is up. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you another thing, David. Uh, you know, I listen to sometimes these financial planners talking about preparing for retirement. And uh, they'll say, well, you know, the days of employers offering, uh, you know, uh, a pension and benefits and all, and, uh, those are gone. But um, military service still uh, still provides that and uh, you know in, in, of course my history I've, I've quit the army uh, 
three times, but never made a clean break. And eventually they called me back and had me stay until I was retired. And, well, I get a check every month. But the amount I pay for my health care is uh, negligible. So and it, it's worth a great deal. And uh, it's not lost on me, and I don't take it for granted. Um, so I'm, I'm very pleased with that. Well, we've got... As long as, as Congress doesn't screw it up or somebody else, I think we've got we've got the greatest military and the greatest folks in the military that any country in the world has. And uh, America's Web Radio continues to salute the active duty as well as the the veterans. And as we've said over and over and over again. If you see someone in the airport that has a cap on, I served in Vietnam, I served on the USS, whatever, whatever, and you buy them a meal or you buy them a drink or you buy them a cup of coffee, whatever, certainly it'll make them happy and, and appreciative. But the person that will be the happiest about it is the one if you do it. And you feel like you've really contributed something and you'll feel good all the rest of that day or all the rest of the night thinking that you supported someone that has really supported you and offered to give their life for you. And uh, we, we certainly encourage people to think our military, think our EMTs and our police officers and you know, I'll I'll throw one or interject one personal thing that I was appalled at what happened in New York. And uh, any city, any state that thinks that they can make it by defunding the police, they're crazy. And uh, a young lady lost her life because of the DA softening on criminals. With that said, though, Phil, we're going to have to bail out of here. It's time to go, and it's been another great show talking to you. I, I love talking to you and finding out your perspectives of many things, but basically the fact that you were in Desert Storm and you uh, you walked the walk and you talked the talk, and you were there. And uh, thank you for your service, and thank you for your service today. With uh, as a as a volunteer with the DAV and uh, helping your peers learn about their benefits as a service officer, so thank you very much. Yes, sir. My pleasure. Thank you, David. Take care. Yes, sir. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.